Okay, tonight I'm thrilled to announce our featured guest, John Barber. John, Canadian by birth, dropped out of high school at 15 and used his comedic talents to break into Hollywood, eventually becoming known as the godfather of reality TV in creating, producing, co-hosting, and writing the 1979 trend-setting hit TV show, Real People. John has been on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, The Dean Martin Show, and has had his own TV shows, The John Barber Hour and The Barber Report, among others, in which he has interviewed many of the Hollywood elite. John also directed and wrote the 1992 documentary entitled The JFK Assassination, The Jim Garrison Tapes, as well as the 2017 sequel documentary entitled The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. John, it's an honor to have such a distinguished and accomplished guest as yourself on our show. Thanks for being with us. Oh, Steve, I'm absolutely delighted. And I'm so, I'm so impressed by this group, this group that I'm facing right now. And I'm looking forward to this gangbang, as I call it. But what <laughs> I would like all of you to do is I'd like all of you to uh, identify yourself and where you're talking from so people would know where you are. I'm, I'm in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I've been here for a dozen years. And this is where I wanted to come when I was 17 years of age and ran away from Canada, entered the United States illegally, a country from which I was deported twice because I came here first to be a professional gambler. And it is it's kind of a paradox or serendipity that after all these years, I end up living in Las Vegas. So tell everybody where you're from. Well, I'm, uh, I'm still talking. I'm from New York, but I'm in Singapore. So Why um, Singapore? Why Singapore? Uh, I came out here a long time ago. In 1994, I came out because my job was opening, my, my employer was opening an office out here and they asked me to come and help open the office. And that's what brought me out here. And I, I came out for one year and I've been here since. You like it? Yeah, it's fabulous. It's fabulous. That, that's wonderful. Okay, where are the rest of you from? Who wants to go? Yeah, I'll say I'm, well, Chris, as it says in the net on the TV thing itself, but um, I'm obviously Irish, grew up in Ireland, but um, I'm living in London for the past couple of years. So that's where I'm talking to you from at the moment, from the heart of London. Oh, isn't that wonderful? You know the movie The Quiet Man with John Wayne? I do. Uh, Maureen O'Hara? They yes. never wanted yeah. to make that film. Nobody would make that movie. And then John Wayne finally went to Herb Yates at Republic Studios, which only made Westerns, and said, you've got to make this movie. And Yates said, it's a piece of crap. That script is so corny. I won't make that. And Wayne said, please. And so Yates said, I'll tell you what, if you make a Western, I'll make that stupid film for you. So he made a Western called Rio Hondo and then made Quiet Man, which made Republic rich. I mean, wow. nobody yeah. knows what they're doing who's in charge. <laughs> okay, so that's the Irishman. I love the accent, by the way. Okay, who's next? Great. Hartmut, unmute, unmute, Hartmut. Yes, uh, and where are you from? My name is Hartmut. Originally, I was born in Cologne. Maybe you know the large cathedral in Cologne in Germany. Ah, and then I moved only to Bavaria. I know one phrase in German. Wie befinden Sie sich heute? 
That's all I know. <laughs> I don't even know. Well, you know what? It's, it's weird because when I was in school in Canada, and even though when I dropped out at 15, do you know what? I was better educated as a 15-year-old dropout than most PhDs who graduated from Harvard in the United States or Stanford or Yale or Princeton because as a kid in Canada, you had to learn Latin and German and French as well as English. So that's, oh. uh, and for some reason that phrase stuck with me. Okay, now who, who's next on this Schindler's list that I'm looking at? <laughs> I'm uh, Roy Collin from the, <clears throat> the Awakening Podcast. I'm from Cork in Ireland, the Real Republic, and I live in Much in Poland. Oh, gosh. And I mentioned to you that three years ago, my son was the co-executive producer of uh, Criminal Minds and CSI. As a matter of fact, when my son was a youngster, he was the Caucasian Tiger Woods. He shot his first competitive 69 when he was 13 against Phil Mickelson. He won the Canadian National when he was 15. But when he went on hiatus from CSI, he was invited to go to Poland to uh, help a Polish production company do some crime dramas. And my son absolutely loved the country, but most of all, he loved the food because he didn't know that food could taste so good. So next, I guess, Grace, it's you. Where are you from? Hello, John, and hello, everyone. I am Grace Asagra, and I am from the Philippines, living in Princeton, New Jersey, since 1989. So nice meeting you. Oh, John my was God. my first phone call this morning. <laughs> well, I must tell you, I'm absolutely thrilled to be doing this, and I'll answer any and all questions that you have very forthrightly. All right. And don't be afraid to ask me anything. All right. Well, I could talk to you for five hours straight, but um, uh, you're, you're the author of Your Mother's Not a Virgin, The Bumpy Life and Times of the Canadian Dropout Who Changed the Face of American TV, and you also wrote John Barber, The Wittiest Man in America, is a Canadian. Um, so you've had quite a journey. It's really true, Steve. It's I've, really I've true. seen you do com comedy on The Tonight Show, and I've seen you kind of give it to Frank Sinatra. Um, you've had quite a journey. Before we get into the dark stuff um, of, you know, the JFK and the cover-up and the media and stuff like that, uh, could you give us a little bit of your journey from dropping out of high school at 15 and, and journey into Hollywood and what you learned along the way about this world that maybe was uh, not so not so light and um, was eye opening? Well, first of all, you know, most comedians are comedians because they're contrarians and they go against whatever anybody else says. So you said the dark side to me, there was no dark side. Uh, because if you can tell the truth about what really happened, you're shining a light on it. And that's what I did, fortunately, when I accidentally became the Boswell for Jim Garrison. Uh, as for uh, when I was, I was, I came from a severely dysfunctional family long before it was popular. I was born into the Salvation Army Charity Ward in uh, Toronto, uh, when I was six years of age, uh, my mother and, fought, and father fought so badly, which I was a witness to from just this young, young child, 
that my father thought it would be easier for him in life if he joined the Canadian army and took on the Germans instead. So he left and he just never came back. And he was uh, given the order of the British Empire and made some kind of sir or something in England and became a very, very successful uh, advertising owner and executive in Edinburgh, Scotland. It's a great story in the book about how I finally tracked him down in my my 20s and then we never spoke again. We might get to that. But in any event, after he left, uh, my mother brought uh, uncles into my house like they were grapes. I mean, they came in bunches and they came mostly to bed her or booze her and actually mostly to beat her. So I spent a lot of time running to the police station on Main Street to report these beatings, which never did any good. And often when I would leave, leave the police station, I was lucky I would walk across the street and there was the library. So I spent most of my time either in jail or in the library or being a Canadian on a uh, hockey rink. And also there was a theater called the Manor Theater on Kingston Road and for five cents, I could go and see double features. And as a child, I listened to, uh, does the name Lorne Green ring a bell to anybody? Yes, I know who he is. Uh, uh, tell the audience who Lorne Green is. Well, I remember him. He had a TV show with, uh, I think, animals or something. Oh, like, no. Uh, well, he, he did everything. But Lorne Green had this Orson Welles voice. And he was the voice of Canada. And he would go on the CBC and he'd tell these great stories. And I was compelled to sit at the radio as a kid and listened to these great stories. And then he came to the United States and he became Ben Cartwright in Bonanza. So that's, that's who, uh, that's who Lorne okay. Green was. So yeah. as a child, what kept me alive were stories and reading them and looking at them and listening to them. That was as a youngster. And now that I'm older, what keeps me alive is telling them. And, uh, and I just, that's what I am, basically a storyteller and all the wonderful things that happened to me, Steve. I mean, meeting Jim Garrison and becoming his Boswell, accidentally getting the most popular show in the history of television on NBC, uh, uh, Real People. You know, at one time, Real People had a 50 share at America. Now, we only had three networks at the time, ABC, NBC, and CBS, but half of everyone in this country watching television was watching my show. And uh, getting it on was entirely uh, an accident. And then ending up doing the two definitive films on the murder of John Kennedy and how Jim Garrison solved that case, which is a cold case at the Justice Department to this day. All of that stuff happened to me by accident. None of it was planned. Everything that I planned turned into a disaster. So I am a non-believer, but I must tell you, there's something at work in the universe. And I have no idea what it is, even though Hamlet says there are things on the heaven and earth ratio that are not dreamt of in your philosophies. For some reason or other, a lot of people who are fans of mine tell me that there was divine intervention in my life. I do not believe in a God. Now, I'm, I'm not 
I'm not, I'm not idiot enough to be an atheist because if, uh, if, if you're an atheist, you have to be definitive that there is no God. I have no proof that there is no God. So I'm a bit of a coward and I'm just an agnostic. I don't know whether there is or whether there isn't, but I will tell you one observation that I've made. It came at, I was working in the mailroom at Paramount Studios. I was 21 years of age and the horrible fake cold war that the United States was having against the Soviet Union. Because Jim Garrison says in the film that the Soviet Union was never an enemy of the United States. What was an enemy of the United States was peace because the Soviet Union lost 25 million souls and uh, three quarters of their infrastructure was destroyed by the Germans. So they were, they were never an enemy. But uh, so the, in, I was a male, in the mailroom at Paramount Studios, illegally in the country at the time. And I had to sneak a copy of a Russian satirical magazine called Crocodile. And in it, I remember the greatest, greatest description of the difference between capitalism and communism was a cartoon joke. And, and this young Russian kid, uh, Pietro, was getting in trouble with the teacher. And the teacher scolded him and standed up and said, okay, Pietro, tell the class the difference between capitalism and communism. So Pietro stood up and he said, the difference between capitalism and communism is that under capitalism, man exploits man. Under communism, it's the other way around. And I never forgot how brilliant that was, but I could have been fired for just reading a Russian satirical magazine at the time. But what I've noticed about if people are atheists, as they might be in the Soviet Union or in, even in Cuba, even though they still allow churches to be built and good for them, is that atheists are still curious about what's going on in the universe and what's going on in life. But everyone that I've met who is a devout believer in God has become stagnant because they think everything is in God's hands and everything will work out fine. But you and I and the whole world knows nothing is working out fine. So I may have gotten a little sidetracked, but if you want me to get to how I got to the United States and what I did when I crossed the border illegally, I will get to it. Sorry if I'm, you know, going all over the place here. Well, why don't we, because Jim Garrison is probably someone most people aren't aware of. And in your 1992 documentary, he's the focus. It's uh, your documentary is called, um, what is it called? The, you know, the, the JFK assassination, the Jim Garrison tape. So what, what I'd like to, you're passionate about still the JFK assassination because it's a murder by the powers that should not be. And they got away with it by burying the truth, eliminating witnesses, not investigating. Um, because Oswald was murdered in broad daylight, there was never, it never went to court. And it's, for me, it's, I think it's really relevant today for people to get that the same stuff that went on then that buried the murder in broad daylight of our president is going on today. And would you agree with that? And well, why is that so? And how is that so? 
Well, the reason I'm so passionate about it is what I said earlier. I am a storyteller. And by far the greatest, the third greatest story in American history is the story of Jim Garrison's investigation into the murder of John Kennedy, which he solved. And there's absolutely no question that he had solved that case. And he was sabotaged by not only the every agency in the federal government, it was sabotaged by the entire media. The entire media, that's why the, the second movie is called The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And in the film, you see Jim Garrison saying that the assassination was a slam dunk cinch. It was a no-risk operation. First of all, you had the CIA working with the Dallas Police Department. He said, but more than that, before it happened, there would be elements of the media to spread the fiction of the lone assassin along before the truth could come out. And that media was CBS with Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite and Bill Paley, who was one of the creators of the Central Intelligence Agency. The owner of CBS had been with the OSS in the Second, yeah, and, uh, second uh, World um, War. John, NBC was was practicing, they were filming a segment of the Warren Commission, you know, clean no, slam that dunk. Was, that was CBS, not NBC. Or, okay, but they were filming it before the Warren Commission was even, had even finished their investigation. They were filming a segment that the Warren Commission had solved the case and it was, it was done and Oswald was a, the lone shooter, as well as Dan Rather saying that President Kennedy was propelled forward when clearly in the film he's propelled backwards as well as Walter Cronkite the sellout uh, it couldn't have been done without these liars well just, when I when I was making both films I offered Dan rather $25,000 to sit down and answer one question and that question was going to be who was with you when you looked first looked at the Zapruder film because the big honcho in American uh, television at that time, the godfather of journalism, was Walter Cronkite. And you would think the story of the Zapruder film would be told to us by Walter Cronkite and not an ordinary uh, Dallas Street reporter. And guess what happens to Dan Rather? Eight years later, he becomes the spokesperson for CBS. He became the $8 million man on the cover of Time magazine. I want to tell you, one, I'm going to tell you two quick stories. First of all, I'm going to tell you about what happened when I first came to the United States when I was 17. Is it okay if I tell you that? Sure. Okay. I wanted to be a professional gambler. I dropped out of school when I was 15. Between the ages of 15 and 17, I was the most compulsive misfit gambler in the world. Anything that I could earn as a kid or steal from my mother's purse or steal from anybody else. And I was a very adept thief, even though I got caught twice and convicted twice uh, um, for felonies, which kept me out of the country for a while. But in any event, I realized I was playing with my older people. I'm only a kid, okay? But I realized I wasn't trying to make money. I was trying to make friends. But who would want to be friends with gamblers like me. I didn't like them and I didn't even like me. I was the first person to lose and the last person to leave. So I thought, you know, if I'm gonna do this, I better learn how to do it. 
So I went to the library across from the police station and I got two books, Scarney on Dice, Scarney on Cards. And when I read, I don't intend to, but it's like I memorize everything. So I became an expert. And in three months, this kid won $700 from these people. And with the $700, I went out and I bought this suit that you see on the cover. This suit is what I wore when I came to the United States. I put on this Stetson because I'm only 17, but I'm going to gamble. I want folks to think I'm older than 21 years of age. So I just walk across the border. They ask me where I'm going. I said, I'm just going to Buffalo to look around. I got on a train bound for Las Vegas. As we reach Northern Nevada, there's a huge accident and the it stops. The train stops and they don't tell us why. But I think the Canadian police have called the, uh, the train company and said, you better try to stop that train. This crook Johnny Barber is wanted by us. So I got off. <laughs> and the only place I could get to was a place called Lake Tahoe. I got on a bus and I got off at the Calneva Lodge. And for this kid, it was like looking at a set built by MGM. And I walked in there and I was looking for Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. I mean, it was all in Technicolor. I was enthralled. Eventually, I go to the crap table and I start gambling. And I'm doing pretty well. And then some guys start imitating my bets. And they were much older than me and start staring at me. And I think, oh, my God, they know I'm only 17. They're going to call the cops. And then pretty soon, people at the bar are looking my way. And Steve, I realized they weren't looking at me. They were looking past me. And when I turned around through the door came Frank Sinatra with a black overcoat on, like wearing it like an Italian Superman. And he was arm in arm with Sam Giancana, the mafia chieftain of Chicago and flanked wow. by three Italian Praetorian guards. Everybody got still there, transfixed that this major star was walking by. A week earlier, I'd seen him at the Manor Theater. It was a movie about Jerome Kern called As the Clouds Roll By, and there's Sinatra. You've probably seen him on a white pedestal singing Old Man River in a white tuxedo just magnificently. Okay, he walked out of the movie, walked right by me, and little would I know that 25 years later, I would become his private writer for four and a half, for four and a half years. I went to Las Vegas for about five months. I was doing well, but you know, you can, and I put my game was a one deck blackjack and I, you, you can't sit at a table for more than an hour and a half or two hours. There were no movie, one movie theater to go to. So I went to see all the shows. I saw Noel Coward. I saw Edith Piaf, really great classy acts. And I loved it. And then one day I realized, you know what? I'm not getting any emotional kick out of gambling anymore. I feel like I'm uh, having an out-of-body experience. I lost all interest in gambling. I cashed in my chips. I got on a train and went to Los Angeles because that's where at the end of the movies it said made in Hollywood. I loved all these shows that I saw here. And I wanted to get into show business so I could become a storyteller. And that's how, that's how I ended up there. And I could tell, if you're interested, I could tell you about the first time I was deported. If you're interested in that story, 
because all right, tell us quickly because we got a lot of work to cover. Okay, uh, okay, and listen, do you guys have a time limit on this? No. Okay, I will talk for as long as you're interested in anything I have to say because this is a wonderful experience, and I'm getting nervous and bored at staring at the other four faces who haven't said a word. So I'm anxious to hear what they <laughs> okay. So anyway, I end up in a boarding house in Los Angeles, a boarding house occupied only by uh, men. And one of them was a fellow named Kirkwood, a very fine, famous silent movie star. Uh, another fellow who was a Jewish jeweler whose wife had committed suicide and he sold everything and tried to reshape his life moved into this place and sort of adopted me and taught me a lot about American history. He adopted me, really, literally. But there was an accountant, about a 25-year-old kid. At the time, now none of you would remember this, but there was this Cold War against the Soviet Union, you had the House on American Activities Committee, destroying people's lives. They had the blacklist going on in Hollywood. And I used to get in arguments with this, kid who called himself a young Republican. And I said to him, you know, that's the first time I've ever heard those two words together, young and Republican, because every Republican I knew was old and he hated. He didn't even know who FDR yet was, Franklin Roosevelt. And he called him a commie and said God had crippled him because he was a communist. He had polio and gave him an ugly wife, Eleanor, to wake up to every morning. I mean, decimated this, you know, and and I said to him, you know, will you talk about your grandfather um, and how wonderful he was? You know, your grandfather collects Social Security. And that was instituted by uh, uh, FDR and his socialist vice president, Henry Wallace, in the 1930s to save American capitalism and free enterprise from a, a, a socialist or communist revolution. We have an eight-hour workday. We have workman's compensation. We have Medicare, all thanks to socialists in the 1930s. And I said, you know what? When I go around Los Angeles, I see Roosevelt streets, Roosevelt schools, Roosevelt parks. I said, all these wonderful things named after Roosevelt. The only thing named after uh, uh, Hoover, who was a Republican who caused the depression, is a goddamn vacuum cleaner. Well, everybody at the table started applauding and laughing. He got up from the table, and five minutes later, the house was surrounded by FBI agents in cars coming to arrest this 17-year-old Canadian commie who was trying to overthrow the American government. So anyway, they took me downtown, and they found out that I was no threat to the U.S. government. I was only a threat to shop owners in Toronto, and they turned me over to the Immigration Service. I was at a place called Terminal Island, and Terminal Island could have been a resort. It's like Miralago. It was right there in San Diego at the harbor. And they put me on the third floor, and it was all bunks, like an army barracks. There were about 50 bunks, so there were Mexicans there and Europeans there and Filipinos. Everybody was there. And in order to deport the Canadians, they wouldn't send you one at a time. They would get you in groups and they would send you en masse. They offered me a voluntary departure, $28 if I could get a bus ticket. I had never spoken to my mother since it was uh, left home, and I called her collect to see if I could get the $28, and she, told, she 
only accepted the charges to tell me what a bastard I was and I deserved to be in jail the rest of my life, just like the uh, the, the man who fathered this bastard. And then she- Sounds like my mother. Uh, well, <laughs> they, 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 I'll listen, it sounds like a lot of mothers. So, but in any event, the Mexican guy next to me was in charge of the laundry. And they would pick up the laundry once a week and they put it in a can of a basket and they'd send it three stories down a chute to the bottom to be cleaned. I did not speak Mexican or Spanish or anything, but like Sid Caesar, I pantomimed that I wanted to get into this and go down the laundry chute. So he agreed to help me. So they did one day and one guy faked fainting in the hallway to distract the guard, just like it happened at Dilly Plaza with a guy fainting and they had to call a call a, an ambulance to distract people. But in any event, I go tumbling down the chute and fortunately there's a bunch of clothes there. Now I had choked, I had, I had really done amazing research on this place and picked a Wednesday because it was the busiest day of the week Easy for me, I could either get to the ocean and swim to a boat and become a merchant seaman, or I could walk a hundred yards past un, uh, guards without guns and get on a, on a bus. I get to the bottom, I rush to the door that leads to the bus stop. It's locked on a Wednesday. I rush to the other door, which leads to the ocean. It's locked and I keep going back and forth like a cornered rat. And then I sit down on the clothes and I fall asleep, I'm so exhausted. Then I'm awakened, and it's a guard. He said, oh, look what we have here, a live body amongst the dirty clothes. What are you trying <laughs> to do? And I just looked up and said, what do you think, escape? Well, so he dragged me up to the office, and they spent an hour grilling me to make sure I didn't have Confederates helping me. Then they took me back upstairs. Now, when I got to the third floor, everybody stood and watched because they were wondering if I had ratted on them, which I hadn't. And from that day, uh, I, I said to the, the guard, I said, you know, it's, it's, uh, it is uh, Wednesday, for God's sake. Why is everything locked? And he laughed and he said, John, it's uh, July 4th. It's Independence Day. <laughs> So from that day on, the Mexicans called me Julio Cuatro. But get this, exactly 25 years later, I am the host of the most success and creator of the most successful show in American television, Real People. And I get this letter. And the letter says, John, you've got to tell me it is you. He said, you know, I tell my wife and I tell my two kids and I tell all the neighbors that I am the guy that found you in the dirty laundry in Terminal Island and nobody believes me. They tell me I'm nuts and I'm cuckoo and I, I'm a stargazer. Please tell me it's you. So I wrote him back a nice note and I thanked him for sending the letter. I said I've been looking at him for looking for him for a couple of years because if it hadn't been for him, I'd either be in the Merchant Navy or I'd be in jail. And I sent him a picture of me with Sarah Purcell and I was wearing a $600 suit, which was bought for me by NBC. And a lot of these things happened to me during my life. All these weird things that happened as a kid that I thought were meaningless ended up to mean a whole lot to me 
when I uh, when I ended up becoming successful. So if you want to get to Jim Garrison, when I went to Hollywood, my idol in television was a guy named Jack Parr. Has anybody ever heard of Jack Parr? Yep. Yep. Jack Parr was by far the greatest late night talk show host in America, better than Carson and any of all of them combined. He was funny. He was witty. He was intelligent and he was curious. And he introduced amazing people to television. Uh, looks like John's frozen. Hmm. Hopefully he'll come back. <laughs> oh, well, that was quite a story he was telling. Kinds of stars, what you could read about. Here he is, here he is. Are you John, your internet's going out. Are you back? Can you, can you hear us? Time for a commercial break. You're listening to the Freedom Broadcasters. You can find all of us on freedombroadcasters.com. <laughs> uh, we got to get John back. He's, I mean, the guy's lived like 20 lives. Yeah. But I'm sure the, uh, yeah. I want to get to the documentary he made in 1992 and 2017 because it's very relevant to what's going on today. So, um, hopefully he'll come back and we'll get on to all that and everyone else will get a chance to, to speak. But, uh, um, at this point, so maybe just go around and talk about your podcast where people can find you just because we're still live. And, and for the meantime, I'll call him. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm on all the normal podcasts. My podcast is awakened mind. It's uh, about a wellness truth and everything else and, and almost anything under the sun that's empowering and, uh, 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 you know, creating awareness. I've got uh, four podcasts. I've got the speaking podcast, the learn Polish podcast, meditation podcast, and the awakening podcast. And all can be found on freedombroadcasters.com. Mine is simply just go to mindwars.uk instead of going to all these different links and tags and so on. Just type in mindwars.uk. You'll find all the episodes either on video or podcast format. And if you click the actual BitChute channel is highlighted in the actual website itself, it'll take you to some extra videos that are not on my uh, actual website at the moment. So, And check out my latest episode is with uh, Dr. Andrew Kaufman that proves there is no virus. So if you want to check out that, have a look at that, and uh, it's quite informative because I've done it to break it down so simple for people that are pretty much trying to wake up at the moment that they'll understand it. So it's a very simple one to go through it and for people to basically understand it. It's more of a Q&A than a conversation type, and it was done on purpose that way to keep it simple. You can find me on, uh, on Anchor, Go Your Own Path, and my um, podcast is about... Um, changing the perception to go your own path to have the courage to do it and to uh let the mainstream behind you thank you so we grace and and mine is quantum nurse uh, out of the rabbit hole from stress to bliss and originally i really conceived this podcast so i could help and reach out to stress caregivers with families who have dementia and Alzheimer's. And because I'm a holistic practitioner in terms of holistic wellness, but 
because health, uh, everything, I mean, everything uh, affects health. So I, I like us to be critical thinkers. So I'm with these guys who talk about critical thinking. And now Johnny's back, so I'm gonna put him back. What, what, hap what happened that I went away? Did I, I your, inter huh? your internet, your internet canceled out. Um, oh, so okay. are you back? Are you ready to go? Are you, are you back? Can you hear us? Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I must have, you know, That's, it's weird. I, in, 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 in talking with my hands, I must have bumped the computer. I'm so sorry me. about your, that. your stories are incredible. So just to, to get back, we, um, you were, that was an unbelievable story when you were 17 that you you were kind of uh, okay. exiled on this. It's what you started. I, I became a comic because I admired Jack Parr. I did not know people talked to one another. I thought they punched one another, they yelled one another. And I wanted to have a talk show, but to get it, I had to do stand-up comedy, which I did and did successfully, which led to me accidentally getting the first news morning show on ABC in Los Angeles. That happened by accident. Okay, so now I'm the first one in America to review movies on the news. And one of the reviews I did ended up in the Supreme Court because what existed in America at the time was something called the Fairness Doctrine. So when I had Ronald Reagan on the show, I then had to have a Democrat. And then I had a Democrat, I then had to have a Nazi because they got 5% of the vote. And if you were a, a, an author or a, a producer or whatever, and a critic trashed you in the newspapers or on television or radio, you could ask for and get equal time. That, that was destroyed by Bill Clinton because of a Jim Garrison appearance late night on NBC. So we can get to that later. So anyway, I become the host of the show. We're going to go live. And I put on people like Muhammad Ali. Now, Muhammad Ali is now considered a god. But in those days, people wanted Muhammad Ali either in a grave or in prison because he said he wasn't going to go to Vietnam to fight yellow people because his problem was white people in the United States. So they wanted him gone. And Americans, like most people, are heroes after the fact. Everybody thinks he's a god now, but they didn't then. And the same with Jane Fonda. Because of people like Jane Fonda, the Vietnam, who risked her career and her life, helped end the fake Vietnam War. And war criminals like Lyndon Johnson should have been in prison like everyone at both Bushes. George Sr. and George Jr. should have both been in prison as war criminals. But I had people on who would talk about that. I was not allowed to talk about it because of the fairness doctrine, but I could put people on. And once I put people on who attacked the government, I had to put people on who could support the government. In any event, I believed the Warren report. Uh, the, 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 I, I was not a citizen yet. I had been deported a second time and snuck back in a fabulous story in the book about how I got the American government to reinterpret immigration laws when no immigration lawyer in the country was able to do it. Just a 21-year-old kid was able to do it because I'd become such an expert on immigration law when I was deported and I spent all my time at Toronto University reading law books. But in any event, 
I believe the Warren Report. I want to become an American more than anything in the world. And uh, one day, uh, I'm in a bookstore. It's called Edmonds Bookstore. It's on Hollywood Boulevard, across from Musso and Frank's, a hundred-year-old legendary restaurant. And there's this book called Heritage of Stone. And then the author is uh, Jim Garrison. He never called himself James. Well, always Jim Garrison. I thought, is that the DA, the guy in uh, in New Orleans? So I pick it up and I start to read it. I stood for four hours reading that book in its entirety, and I was staggered. But I what what I learned? I learned that he had to sue Time Life in order to get the Zapruder film to a jury. And then there was a forensic expert, the only forensic uh, pathologist who was at the autopsy, his name was Fink, who testified at the trial that there was no autopsy because it was prevented by generals and admirals in suits. And I thought, oh my God, we never heard about this on the news. So I thought, God, what a terrific guest this guy would be. So I get up next morning, it's six o'clock in LA, it's nine o'clock in New Orleans, and I call information, I get the DA's office, I dial it, and this bass baritone voice says, hello. And I said, oh, could I speak to Mr. Garrison, please? And he said, uh, this is he. And, uh, correct English. And I said, oh, Mr. Garrison, my name's John Barber. I just finished reading uh, Heritage of Stone, and he started to chuckle. He said, oh, John, you must be the other one. I only sold two copies. And who wouldn't love a guy like that? And I said, well, you know, I have this show, and it's. Uh, I would love to interview you for half an hour. We're live. We're the only show in L.A. that takes phone calls from viewers, and I know people would line up to want to talk to you. John, and what year was this? This was 1970. And he says, you'll never get away with it. And I said, listen, I've just won my first Emmy. He said, you plan on winning others? I mean, that's how smart this guy was. I did. I'm the only one on television to win five Emmys. I'm the only person to win, win them for both entertainment and news. But that was my first one on, on that show. I reluctantly talked him into being on the show. He said, you've never seen me on television. I said, I did. I saw you late night on NBC. And he said, that's only because of the fairness doctrine, which I tell you, we won't have anymore very, very soon. Mark my words. And so I, we started to chat. And he said to me, you know, John, at six years after the publication of the Warren Report, it came out in 1964, do you realize that Harris Poll last week said that 81% of all Americans do not believe that Oswald either did it or acted alone? And I said, my God, that's astonishing. Why aren't you people out on the streets protesting? And he said, well, you didn't see the second question in the poll. And I said, what was the second question? He said, the second question is, would you like to see a deeper investigation in which the subject of the investigations are first the CIA and then the FBI? And I said, terrific. He said, no, it's not terrific. You know how many people wanted that? And I said, how many? He said, only 23%. And he said, what does that say to us about Americans? And I blurted out, Mr. Garrison, you know what it says to me? 
I know what my mother and father did in the rumble seat of the car, with the rumble seat at the time, or on the pool table at the back alley of the bedroom to conceive me. But don't ever tell me my mother's not a virgin. Well, he started to laugh. And he said, you know, you sound like my favorite American writer, Mark Twain, who said it's easier to fool people than to convince people they have been fooled. And we've been fooled since November 22nd, 1963. So he said, I will happily do your show. The next day I was fired and he was canceled. Now, Steve, I did not think this had anything to do with my trying to book Jim Garrison. I was just a struggling performer and in show business, you don't have a job for life. You know, I wasn't lucky enough like Ed Sullivan who had absolutely no talent, but introduced people with talent. You know, you work uh, 13 weeks or you work a day, you work two days. I had not, but since I had been the first person to do movie reviews, I was hired by the Los Angeles Magazine for 10 years to be their resident uh, film critic. So that was the next job that I had until I got the chance. And John, you know what? You know what that was? You were being censored back in 1970. Yeah, but I didn't know that. I had the foggiest. I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm as uninformed as everybody else. I mean, when I got to meet Mr. Garrison, oh my God, it was literally next to the birth of my son, the most thrilling, scary inspiring day of my life because there is nobody like Mr. Garrison alive today. I mean, that story of Jim Garrison is the third greatest story, as I said, first the story of the American Revolution and the story of the Civil War and then yeah. the story of the murder of John Kennedy and the solving of it by Jim John, Garrison. John, can I say, can I say that uh, for people who aren't don't, they don't know who Jim Garrison is. You can go to your website. You can go to your YouTube channel, and you have the first documentary, 1992, that you made in 1992, uh, on your website, and you can buy the other one on Vimeo. But the important thing I'd like to get across with Jim Garrison is he was the New Orleans District Attorney that blew the Warren Commission report, which was a total cover-up of the murder of uh, of John F. Kennedy. That, in, Steve, in, that also happened by accident. But, you know, yeah, my, but so where I'm going with this, because I'm going to pass it on to Roy, is that okay. what, what I want to say is that John Garrison, Jim Garrison was FBI, Air Force, patriotic, believed in the good of humanity and his government. And it was not until he even believed the Warren Commission until a man named Boggs, who was on the Warren Commission, who discredited the Warren Commission, told him there is a cover up. And to, you know, to put it mildly, there's a cover up and then Boggs was killed. And that's what's he he became awake by a random conversation with someone on the Warren Commission who discredited the Warren Commission, meaning I'm trying to say every the public is trusting. The public believes in the good of humanity. So did he until he saw what's possible and how corrupt things can get. So I just want to make it clear that like Jim Garrison, he was a believer in the goodness of humanity and couldn't even conceive of the deception that's being played upon the public that well, he was trying I, I to tell. I wouldn't go so, so far as to say he believed in the goodness of humanity because the only picture that he had in his office was a picture of him at Dachau when they liberated that death camp. And he said, let's let it never happen again. That was the only picture that okay. he had 
in his well, office. Let's get, let's get Roy. Let's get Roy in. Okay. Because we don't, you know, we've already killed almost an hour, so <laughs> time goes fast. Um, hi, John. Uh, just curious because, I, like, I've seen the with Jim Garrison. I mean, he was extremely brave coming out when he saw what was going on. Did he actually? I I don't know what's happened to him in the future. Was he whacked, or did he actually die of natural causes? Or uh, well, we don't know exactly how he died. And the business of Jim Garrison getting involved was an entire accident. You know, when I started as a comic, my mentor was Red Fox. Black comedian became my comic. And when I got uh, my first variety show, I put Red Fox on television, which led to Sanford and Son. His real name is John Sanford. And when I was talking to Red about Jim Garrison, Red Fox said, heroes ain't born. They're cornered, which is a brilliant line because Jim Garrison was was cornered by the accidental meeting with Congressman Hale Boggs, who, as Steve said, was the only dissenting member of the Warren Commission, and his dissent was never published. So a little a further additional information about Hale Boggs. He met Jim Garrison on the plane, and he says, Jim, I'm a hunter, and I'm telling you, I couldn't kill a dead rabbit at 10 feet with that damn man with a carcano and that crooked sight. And Garrison said, you mean? And he said, yes, I mean. And listen to what I have to say to Congress. And you can go to the congressional record. And there is Hale Boggs on the congressional record saying, we were lied to by J. Edgar Hoover, who should be fired. And there should be a new investigation into the murder of John Kennedy. And then what happens is Hale Boggs is driven to a private plane, sails over Alaska and disappears. And guess who drove Hale Boggs to the airport? Young Billy Clinton. Bill Clinton was recruited along with his wife by the CIA when he was in college. He was never a Rhodes Scholar. He was sent to the Soviet Union. So Jim Garrison reluctantly, reluctantly, find, uh, uh, he, he, he hears from, from, from Boggs about this. So not only does he get 26, the, the Warren report is 26 volumes. He got three sets. He put one set in his car, one set in his office, and one set at home, and he memorized them. And since uh, Oswald lived in New Orleans, he had to investigate what was going on in New Orleans. And it was so easy to find out. And the first person that he wanted to arrest was David Ferry who admitted to Lou Ivons, who was Garrison's, one of Garrison's lead investigators, that they were all CIA. Clay Shaw, uh, Jack Ruby, Lee Harvey Oswald were all, David Ferry, were all CIA. And so that's a guy that Jim Garrison wanted to arrest. But David Ferry committed suicide twice. He left two suicide notes. So Garrison didn't want to find a suicide note from Clay Shaw. So he arrested Clay Shaw and put him on trial for conspiracy. Now, we were told at the time by the media that it was a charge of conspiracy to murder the president of the United States. That was not Garrison's leading case. And a lot of people will know who Jim Garrison was if they saw the movie JFK, the only important movie ever to come out of Hollywood was JFK, because a work of art that is important is something that transforms society. 
And because of JFK, we got the passage in the early 90s of the JFK Records Assassination Act. And some of those files are in the second film, dated 1967, when Garrison arrested Clay Shaw, is this file that says we have to send help to Clay Shaw, New Orleans, otherwise Garrison's going to win his conspiracy case. But he wasn't after that. He was after the perjury case because he had a slam dunk conviction because Shaw denied knowing either David Ferry or Lee Harvey Oswald, and he had 87 witnesses. And the jury in eight minutes found Clay Shaw guilty of perjury, and you never heard about it. I'm going to tell you something else you never heard about. This is how thorough and how magnificent an attorney and an American Jim Garrison was. He wanted, uh, I have to mention this because it's in the film. Clay Shaw was a very deviant, sadomasochistic homosexual. And when he was arrested, we filmed all the paraphernalia that he was arrested with. Jim Garrison ordered his staff not to report this to anybody. They were not going to introduce it in the trial, and it wasn't supposed to go to the media because it had his lifestyle had nothing to do with his participation in the murder of John Kennedy. And he would prove that he did. Uh, he was involved with the murder of John Kennedy, not in the conspiracy case, but in the uh, perj in the perjury case. So what he did. He went to a grand jury, and immediately the grand jury said indict. And then he wanted to further protect Clay Shaw's rights and his case. So he convened three judges, the three leading judges in Louisiana, over and above the uh, grand jury to hear the case. Then he invited Clay Shaw's attorney, a guy named Diamond, to present his arguments and see what the, uh, the three-judge panel would say. Ivan's introduced the 26 volumes of the Ward Report, in which Clay Shaw's name is not even mentioned. And you know what the three judges ruled? The Warren Report is inadmissible as legal evidence because it is not an investigation. The Warren Report is hearsay. Now, had the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal reported what this panel said, yeah, the case against uh, the the case against Oswald would have absolutely and totally collapsed. But what happened is when the jury found Shaw guilty of uh, perjury, the government stepped in and literally blocked the case. Instead, they began to bring criminal charges against Jim Garrison. And you know what broke the case? Um, the uh, New Orleans statesman had discovered that Jim Garrison had spent $8,000 investigating the murder of John Kennedy. The federal government spent $15 million blocking the investigation into the murder of John Kennedy, mainly by setting up, of course, the fake Warren report. So when it was reported that Garrison was spending $8,000, the story became public, and that's when the mass media, everybody has started attacking Jim Garrison. But what look, people don't know, the people of New Orleans loved and believed Garrison. 
and 30 of the most prominent businessmen in New Orleans started a group called Truth or Consequences. And they, of course, named Jim Garrison the head of it. And guess what Jim Garrison's code name was? Winston Smith. Do you know who Winston Smith is? The lead character in 1984. That's how smart and intelligent Garrison was. And his aide was the wealthiest man in New Orleans who was a horse dealer and a horse gambler. And Jim didn't like to, couldn't travel because his wife, life was threatened. So his aide went to the Larry King show. Larry King used to have a very successful radio show out of Miami, very popular. I listened to it all the time. He had a really nice voice and he had interesting guests. So this guy goes on the show and starts talking about what Mr. Garrison is doing in New Orleans. And guess what, Roy? In four hours, Americans send $50,000 to Larry King to give to Jim Garrison for his investigation. And guess how much money Jim Garrison got? Not a nickel. Larry King kept it. And Larry King was a, a had lost almost $100,000 gambling on horses, even in those days. He used the $50,000 to pay off his gambling debt. And he was convicted of grand theft, $5,000 perjury. And ends up a few years later as one of the major talk shows in American television. Come on, give me a, give me a break. People do not know these stories. And I can tell you stuff about, that Jim Garrison found out that is in the Garrison files. Now, you know, the Warren Report files come out in the year 2039. And that's when Earl Warren said that, that, that the truth won't be known until 2039. You won't find Mr. Garrison's files until 25 years later. And the reason is he sent his files to the CIA and the House Select Committee, but they he names names, the amount of money, the shooters and everything. He solved the case. Now, here's a little sidebar story. Have you guys ever heard of a guy named Jefferson Morley? Any of you? Well, you guys have heard of Mark Lane. Well, another good researcher was a guy named Jefferson Morley in Washington, D.C. Six years ago, he filed suit against the CIA. Now, you know that because of uh, 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 JFK, by the way, Jim Garrison never argued in court. Only his assistants argued. But in the movie, Kevin Costner argues in court. That, that was fiction, but the film was magnificent nevertheless. But in any event, what happened was that Jefferson Morley, the Congress ruled that a year ago, October, all the CIA files were to be released related to the John Kennedy murder. And uh, Donald Trump backed down and went along with the CIA not releasing the files. We all thought maybe Donald was such an iconoclast, maybe we would see the files, but he caved in. They all caved in. We'll never see anything with Biden either. The president does run the country, as Garrison said. But in any event, Jefferson Morley sued the CIA not to get the CIA files as mandated by Congress, but to get garrisons. And it went all the way for five years. It went through the courts until last year it ended up in a superior court in Washington, D.C. And the judge ruled against Jefferson Morley 
and ruled in favor of the CIA not releasing the garrison files ever. And guess who the, the judge was? Brett Kavanaugh, the guy that Donald Trump appointed to the Supreme Court. People don't know this. This country is run by probably a dozen families who own it. I mean, those people who reach the top of the economic and political ladder in the United States of America are also the same people who occupy the bottom of the ladder, the inhumanity part of that ladder. I mean, America is absolutely done and over with because Jimmy Carter in the film, the second film said, America will never be right again until we get to the solving of the John Kennedy murder. And a month later, there was an assassination attempt on, Jim, uh, on uh, Jimmy Carter. And he said, I've lost control of the government. It is all in the film. And you know what? When I made, Steve, since you mentioned the first one, The Garrison Files, I offered that film free every year, November 22nd, every network in this country, they all turned it down. And then I offered it free to the leading 12 assassination sites. And they have a few million subscribers. And I say, here's the movie free for your subscribers. They all turn it down. The second film, The American Media and the Second Assassination of President John F. Kennedy is a monster runaway hit on Amazon with no help whatsoever. First of all, not from the mainstream media, but from these bullshit assassination sites, which have also been infiltrated by Project Mockingbird. Project Mockingbird was instituted, as Jim Garrison points out in the film, uh, the CIA was created in 1947. Harry Truman said it's the worst decision he ever made. And then they created the thing called Project Mockingbird run by Alan Dulles, who was head of the CIA. And because there was peace with the Soviet Union was a threat because the, second de the major depression was only ended by the Second World War. And with a million and a half troops coming back to make television sets or radio or washing machines, the, the depression would have continued. And Eisenhower warns us in the film of the rise of the military industrial complex, which murdered John Kennedy. We have to have fake wars forever. So the Project Mockingbird was created to produce the fake first fake war against the Soviet Union then the fake war against Vietnam with the fake Gulf of Tonkin resolution, and then worse, the fake war against Iraq when there were no weapons of mass destruction. And then you have uh, in this country uh, last week, Thermopolis, who was one of the talking head newscasters in this country, talking to Joe Biden and asked Joe Biden if Putin is a killer. And Joe Biden, like an idiot, says, yes, he's a killer. What a terrible thing for a president to say about a president of another country. Now, Putin may or may not be a killer, but Thermopolis never says to Biden, how about the killers in this country, which Donald Trump talked about? That means both Bushes. It means Lyndon Johnson. It means Ronald Reagan. 
And it means Bill Clinton who murdered 87 people in Waco for crying out loud. This country is built and run by killers. And you have, you know, it is not necessary. Thomas Jefferson and John Kennedy say in the film, you cannot have a functioning democracy unless you have a free press. I'll explain to you why we do not have a free press destroyed by Bill Clinton. In 1963, when John Kennedy was alive, we had 1,500 different owners of media, of radio stations, television stations, and newspapers. Because of Bill Clinton, the worst president in American history, we now have nine, and he passed the, the Communications Act, which put 96% of all the media in the hands of six major corporations. Now, any, uh, 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 any president has the power to solve that problem with a pen. All they have to do is sign an executive order. And Donald Trump has failed to do so for the simple reason he needed the fake news, which he kept complaining about. There's a great clip of him from 60 Minutes. It's an outtake and which he's telling Stahl, Miss Stahl, that he needs the fake news and he will always attack 60 Minutes as fake news because that way if they disagree with him, he can call it the, call it the fake news. He needed the fake news the way the, the Germans needed Jews in the 30s and the way the Americans needed commies in the 50s. If I had an opportunity to talk to Joe Biden, I'd say the first thing we need, which is more important than you or Lincoln or John Kennedy or Jefferson, is what Kennedy and Jefferson talked about, a free press. That means the First Amendment. So when are you going to reverse the Communications Act and put the media back into the hands of major corporations? I mean, you people should not just be on the internet. You should be on NBC and CBS and ABC. You should be able to buy a television station. You should be able to buy a radio station because that's why the FCC was created initially. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on that rant. Oh, you're grand and that's very interesting. And just maybe something as well that people don't know. I'm not sure what they called it then, but you had like Photoshop of uh, Oswald with two pictures, one holding a gun, and you could see from the shadow under his nose, and they had tilted the head, so it was told, and th that was all hidden as well. And Oswald said, I'll prove it's a fake if I live, because when he was arrested, he was arrested at the time with $5,000 worth of camera equipment. This guy was an expert cameraman. That's why I often doubt the the story of Judith Barry Baker about Lee Harvey Oswald being her lover. They may have been acquainted or something like that, but when I had her as a guest, one of the first questions I asked her was, what's your favorite picture of you with Lee? And she stuttered and stum stumbled. She said, I never took a picture. Well, let me tell you something. I've known a lot of people who have committed adultery, okay? They will find a little photo booth where you put in a dollar or a quarter and they will take a picture of themselves as lovers, which they will keep in their wallet. She does not have a picture of her with Lee Harvey Oswald because so I think her story is questionable. And also she holds again these fake JFK conferences 
It is a closed case in the Justice Department. When the Justice Department concluded, or when the House Select Committee concluded that more than four shots had been fired and therefore a conspiracy existed, they turned it over to the Justice Department for further investigation. At the end of my film, The American Media and the Second Assassination of John F. Kennedy, I have a wanted poster. When I interviewed Garrison on September 5th for three and a half hours, 1985, they gave me a list of a lot of people that should be arrested for the uh, murder, participation in the murder of John Kennedy or question. And I put a bunch of them in this wanted poster. And I am all by myself with my attorney at the end of the film, delivering it to the Justice Department. And I have told Judith Baker and I've told Oliver Stone and I've to, uh, told Cyril Weck, who is by far one of the best coroners in the world, right next to Thomas Noguchi. Thomas Noguchi proved that Bobby Kennedy was not shot by uh, Sirhan, that the bullet that killed him entered an inch and a half from the back of his skull because of the extensive powder burns. And it and May Brussel concluded the murderer was a guy probably named Thane Cesar, who retired to the Philippines, okay? So anyway, if there is so much proof that Garrison was right. And I can, if you wish, I can tell you a couple of interesting stories about what Jim Garrison discovered on the day the assassination happened. Just speaking of lovers, because um, that's just before I pass it over to Chris, um, like Marilyn uh, Monroe was a lover of JFK and apparently committed suicide. I, I think that uh, it was convenient and it was orchestrated. Just curious for your thoughts on, on her. Actually, she was more a lover of Bobby Kennedy. Those two were actually in love. And uh, I became very good friends with Thomas Noguchi and you can read about it in the book, uh, Your Mother's Not a Virgin in the early 80s. Uh, the CIA and the Los Angeles Police Department and the media were trying to get rid of Thomas Gucci because he wouldn't change his autopsy report about the bullet hitting in the back of the head. So myself and his attorney created a, uh, a public group to help save Thomas Gucci as a politically independent coroner of, uh, of Los Angeles and we spoke to thousands of people when we went around the city talking. I mean, you couldn't get in because we were talking about both the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and John Kennedy, standing room only. But we lost because a group of Hollywood celebrities hated Thomas Noguchi. And guess why they hated Thomas Noguchi? This is so unimportant, but this is how the world is run. Uh, this group of Hollywood celebrities was created by my boss at the time, Frank Sinatra. And I had been Frank Sinatra's friend and, hit and, and writer and was about to make a documentary about Sinatra. And he created this group to get rid of Noguchi. And the reason he created the group is one of his friend, best friends was William Holden, William Holden, the actor. Well, Bill Holden died in his apartment or his condominium, Santa, Santa Monica. He fell down and hit his head on a coffee table, and he bled to death because he was unconscious. Now, of course, the LA Times and the news said that 
he tripped and he fell and he died of loss of blood. So, of course, Thomas Noguchi performs the autopsy. And what's he find out? He finds out what everybody knows. Bill Holden was a falling down drunk. And he had been for like 15 or 20 years. I saw him. He was on his way to the night show one day and he fell down in the hall. He was so drunk. So Noguchi reported the alcohol content in his blood. He didn't call him a drunk because he's not there to call names. He's there to give facts. And this is the alcohol level in his blood. Blood. Sinatra was so upset, said we got to get rid of Noguchi. So he was he was the one who read led the road to getting rid of Thomas Noguchi, the best coroner in the world. And of course, it was the last time I ever spoke to Sinatra. But Dr. Cyril Weck, bless his heart, I've told him it's his 90th birthday next year. And he had me, I was his featured speaker at his Kappa conference this year. And on the air, I told him for his 90th birthday, instead of going to these fake JFK conferences in Pittsburgh, even the one he holds, or New Orleans or Dallas, he has to lead a march on the Justice Department. November 22nd should be America's Bastille Day. They should, I mean, and if I told them, I said, Dr. Gucci, if you do this, you're the only one with the credibility that maybe Jesse Ventura will follow you and maybe Oliver Stone would follow you and then maybe the thousands of people that follow celebrities will follow them and we'll have 20,000 people next year show up at your birthday and demand they open the case. And he declined. But that's, you know, Maybe his life is in danger. Who, who knows? I mean, the same with Bobby Kennedy Jr. He does nothing. And even though he says privately, and he was paid by a friend of mine, $150,000 five years ago to speak at a corporation about the murder of his uncle. And it was all kept secret. But he said that his father did not believe the Warren report. But he does nothing about it. And, and you know, I can understand it because look at all the Kennedys who've been killed, but uh, there is a question. Uh, I believe that Mary Monroe was killed with a poisonous suppository and the poison disappeared, but I would never ever talk to Thomas Noguchi about any of his cases, only the autopsies that he made public, which had to do with Bobby Kennedy. And you know, his hobby was a watercolor painting, Roy. And to thank me for the two years that I spent trying to save his job, he painted a watercolor for me, and it's the only watercolor painting I have hanging in my bedroom. I have it. I have it to this day. You know, there are a lot of amazing heroes in this country that you will never hear ever hear about. But I would suggest to any and all of you, the name is May Brussel, M A E. Last name, Brussel, B-R-U-S-S-E-L. She is better than every single researcher alive, including yours truly, but I'm not a researcher. I'm just a storyteller. And you go to YouTube and Google Mae Brussel. She is more relevant today than anybody. And she's been dead for 20 years. Okay. Thank you very much, John. I'll pass it over to my fellow Irishman, Chris Ryan. Cheers, Roy. Um, well, one of the questions you just actually touched on a few minutes ago, um, John, was I wanted to get your thoughts on what were the Kennedys feeling? Because it's nothing for years and years and years. 
and you know what is there you know J john f kennedy jr and bobby and such so on and so forth there's, there's been you know as you said it's kind of like a blackout there's nobody talking there's nothing happening in the underground but obviously you just mentioned something that happened a few minutes ago between the money and there's nothing actually been done about it so you've you pretty much sort of touched on that to a certain extent but i had another question which is kind of going back to the media itself in a small bit off not necessarily this was off jfk but when you were decades and decades ago starting out like the hollywood industry like as we know it today and now we're more clued in on what's going on and how there's so much pedophilia and there's so much you know cult symbols satanic loads of elements that consistently running through the mainframe all the way through it how do you perceive it or how did you see it back then in comparison to what is today i can see it's escalated dramatically but i'd like to get your thoughts on on the inside and what your perception of what you view the the whole so-called hollywood elite um, that it is and what it really symbolizes in the well, background. When I was starting, Chris, I didn't know any elite. I was at the bottom of the ladder. So I, and I had no, my impressions of Hollywood were the same impressions as yours or anyone else just from the, all the movies. I saw a great comment by uh, Jim Garrison when I was interviewing him because as Steve pointed out, you know, he had been with the FBI he was in the uh, military. He was uh, at Dachau when they liberated that uh, death camp. And he said that he was always involved with authority. He believed in authority. He, he said, I'm an authoritarian. I believe in authority. So I could never believe that the government would lie to me. And then I could certainly never believe the government would kill our president. And he said, it's a total shock. And I said, well, you know, you belong to no political party and you first believed the Warren report until you met uh, Congressman Hale Boggs. I said, whatever made you think you could take on the federal government? And Chris, without missing a beat, he chuckled and he smiled and he said, John, I guess as a kid, I saw one too many Frank Capra movies. Well, that was me. I was a kid, Jimmy Stewart, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. So I have no recollections about, about anything other than the daydreams I had of being able to get into the business. But as I got older and got more involved with it, I know uh, a, a few young actors who uh, claim that they were uh, mo molested by pedophiles. Uh, but I never got so much into that. And uh, I, I would get into minor arguments um, with people who were strong Trump supported because Trump was always bashing Biden. And most people that were bashing Biden said they wouldn't let that guy around their children, that this guy was a pedophile. And I said, well, you know, I don't see any legal record of any charges being brought against Joe Biden for pedophilia, but they're in the New York courts today. There are a couple of rape cases against Donald Trump, who happens to be the president of the United States. And I hear you always complaining about Joe Biden. I said, you know, all I see from you people is pictures of Joe Biden stroking the hair of 12-year-old girls. I said, does that say pedophilia? I said, listen, when I was growing up, every American president kissed a baby. Every one of them, were they called pedophiles because they went around killing babies? And I said, have you people never thought of this? That Joe Biden's daughter died in a 
car crash in which he was two and a half years old. Maybe there's something about young children that he somehow misses not having a daughter who was long gone. So grow up for God's sake. And But what I'm working on now is a YouTube. At one time, I did a YouTube about Senator Harry Reid because Harry Reid, about eight years ago, was deciding to spend about $30 million a day to aid Israel and nothing to aid Palestine. So I wrote this scathing letter to him. And in the scathing letter, I pointed out what Teddy Roosevelt said 100 years ago, that no dual citizen should ever be in a position to determine America's foreign policy or domestic policy. They should all be Americans. And I pointed out to Senator Harry Reid, 21 Israeli Americans who are in positions to determine foreign policy, they are the ones who created Bush's weapons of mass destruction existing in Iraq. And I suggested that he introduce a law reinforcing what Teddy Roosevelt said, and they should all be Americans. I said, how many Palestinian Americans are there in these positions? How many Russian Americans? How many Irish Americans are there? There are none. It got it got hundreds of thousands of views, and it was on YouTube for a long time. Now, this is how the media has changed. Last year, I got contacted by Google and YouTube, and they said, your open letter to Senator Harry Reid no longer meets community standards, and if you don't take it down, we'll take it down and demonetize you. Now, I was making a lot substantial amount of money from my videos because they were monetized and watched. So I thought to myself, well, you know, it's been out there for eight years. I'll just forget it. No sense repeating it. And Harry Reid is retired. So I took it down. But that's how things have changed. And the thing that I'm working on now is an open letter from Joe Biden to Woody Allen asking Woody Allen how he got away with being convicted of pedophilia. And I can't wait to post that and see what happens to that. So I don't, I, the business of Hollywood, I only care about the fact that it does not communicate truth to us. I mean, all kinds of weird things. I mean, uh, Dylan Zimmerman, Bob Zimmerman, changed his name to Bob Dylan, and a couple of others said publicly they sold their souls to the devil. Well, there is no devil. There is no devil as there is no God. I'll tell you, I was, I was 12 years old. And, you know, I was desperate for a family. I was desperate for affection. I wasn't getting it. I only knew one guy who came from a happy family. His name was Don Lee. He lived a block away from me, an only child, mother and father. They lived across from the Baptist church, and that's why they moved there. There was a Baptist church. One day I went and I knocked on the door. I didn't phone because, Chris, I was afraid if I'd phone, they'd say, don't come over. The mother answered the door, Mrs. Lee, very, very sweet lady, very Christian lady. And she said, what do you want, Johnny? Glad to see you. And I said, will you adopt me? I just blurted out and she started to laugh. She said, well, you have a mother. I said, no, I don't. Come on over to my house. My mother's in Buffalo with some uncle that I don't even know, and I don't even know when she's coming back. Do you want to see? I don't have a mother. 
So she said, well, come on in. And she, she put her arms around me. She fed me. Oh, I mean, I almost cried. And then, and then uh, she said to me, how would you like to come to church with us? And uh, I said, yeah, because I wanted to be with somebody. And she said, have you ever been to church? And I said, well, if they christen you or they circumcise you in a church, I might have been there. It blurted out of me when I was a kid. So she gave me a book. And I said, what's this? And she says, it's the Bible. You go home and you start reading it. Chris, I rushed home. I started reading and not only did read it, Genesis to Revelations. I memorized the thing. Went to church with them. And the minister did something very smart, I felt. In the middle of the service, he would take a minute and he said, now it's your private time with God. You're going to say your own private prayer to God. So what do I pray for? I pray for my father to be home when I get home. So after the service, in, uh, instead of rushing to the uh, Don Lee's house, I rushed to my own home, opened the door, and dad, dad, I'm hollering from my father. And it's an echo. And I do this for a couple of weeks and he's, he's not there. So after 13 weeks of this, I decided, well, you, this isn't for me. So in the 13th week, when he says, you know, we're going to take a minute out for God now, and you, where's the God? I got up and I left in the middle, and everybody stopped and stared at this 12 year old kid walking out of church. I sat down on the steps. Well, of course, the minister saw me. He's a, I'm the first person he comes over to me. And he said, son, as soon as he said that, I got tears in my eyes. Oh, my God, somebody called me son. And he said, are you okay? And I said, father, I didn't, he was Baptist, but I still called him father. I said, this is not for me. And he said, what's not for you? I said, this praying to God is not for me. I pray every week that my father will be home. And he's never home. And so he said to me, well, you have to understand God's will. Chris, I didn't know where this came from. I said, I don't think I'm in his will. And the people started to laugh. How did this come out of this kid's mouth? Well, he got sort of angry at me. He said, John, John, don't be blasphemous. Don't be taken over by the devil. And I said to him, I said, sir, do you believe in the devil? And everybody got quiet and I'm talking back to the minister saying, do you believe in the devil? And he said, absolutely. And then I said, well, isn't that proof there's no God? Now they hated me. And he said, why do you say that? That's blasphemy. I said, well, if God's all almighty, why didn't he get rid of the guy? I never saw the Lees again after that. But get this. 35 years later, when I'm hosting the real people, we have to, we're live. And I would go into the audience and I would try to find real people to say, we'll be right back with real people or stay tuned for more real people. And there's this round face of a guy that's 45 years of age. And I know it's Don Lee. And he's sitting there with his wife and two kids. I asked him to get up and say it. And I say, Are you Don Lee? And he said, yes, I am. So I said to the audience, I said, you know, I went to his house 25 years ago and asked his mother if she would adopt me. And they started to laugh. And he took the microphone and he said, John, you're lucky you were never adopted by us. Otherwise, you'd be sitting here with me and somebody would, else would be up there hugging Sarah Purcell. That's it. And it's like I said, now this happened when I was 12. And now look at the, what happens here. 
And I could tell you stories about, there's no question, there's some kind of divine intervention at work only because of what Joseph Campbell said. Joseph Campbell is America's greatest philosopher. He wrote Power of Myth. And he said, if you follow your joy, doors will open in the universe as if by accident that you didn't even know existed that would help lead you to your joy. And my joy, whether it was just writing a one-line joke or writing a story, was just to be a storyteller because they were the things that kept me alive. And you know, when I got into television, Chris, I wasn't looking for fame and I wasn't looking for money. You know what I was looking for? Uh, to find yourself. Exactly. How smart of you. Because I figured if I could interview all these successful and famous people, maybe I would learn something that would make me know what it is that I'm doing and where I'm going. I was looking for me. And the same thing happened, you know, because of COVID. I, you know what? I know more people who have committed suicide than have died of natural causes. You know, uh, intellectually, Chris, I am 5,000 years old. Chronologically, I'm 87 years old. I'll be 88 next April 24th. But emotionally, I'm eight years old. And it's the eight-year-old I love. You know why? Because Hans and Christian Anderson fairy tale, it's the kid who said the emperor is wearing no clothing. And Steve mentioned earlier that I was on the uh, Tonight Show with Sinatra and I was setting up a joke and it was about uh, Richard Nixon. And I said, you know, if, if, the, if the emperor was wearing no clothing, he should be arrested for indecent exposure. Well, the audience cheered. Well, that's the eight-year-old in me. And I am still that eight-year-old. I just enjoy talking to people like you. I enjoy listening to stories. I enjoy telling stories. But I was going to commit suicide or thought about it. It's a, a short, short story in the book. It's called uh, a Mirror, Mirror on the Wall. Because I found myself, uh, I knew I was about to be arrested the second time to be deported because I got into an argument with another accountant over Castro. I'm going to tell you something about Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro was a hero to the American media once he got rid of Batista. People don't remember this. He was on the Jack Parr show. He was on the Ed Sullivan show. He was on the Today Show. He ate chicken in Harlem with 20,000 blacks. I mean, they absolutely loved Fidel Castro. And the United States turned him into a commie. He was never a commie to begin with. He was never pro-Russia to begin with. He was just for a revolution. And what happened was this is I was going to my apartment and this accountant stopped and he was really bugged because uh, they were making a star out of Fidel Castro in New York City. And what did I think about it? Well, I didn't know anything at the time, except I was reading it, wanting to become an American. I was studying everything political. And I found out stuff about Castro that you couldn't read in ordinary libraries. You would never learn it at Stanford or Yale, even though you were studying political science, for God's sake. 
the United States made him a communist. And this is how it happened. If you're having a revolution, you need to create industry. You need to create an economy because Karl Marx is right. The economy of any society determines everything about that society. So we have a capitalist economy, and so we have the overabundance of greed, okay? And then the whatever the other societies are. But in any event, he needs to manufacture. They have an oil refinery in Havana, which is owned by uh, American oil companies. The United States offers him oil at $3.98 a barrel. The Russians offer him the oil at $2.12 a barrel. So what are you going to do? You're going to buy Russian oil. So he bought the Russian oil, $2.12 a barrel. Brings it into the tankers into the refinery in Havana. And the, the owners, the American owners say, we're not going to refine it. Now, what do you do if you're Castro? You got these tankers there filled with oil. You need the refinery. Well, he had confiscated his father's land, so he confiscated the oil refineries. So my friend is screaming, well, that proves he's a commie. I said, well, hold it. He paid them for it. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you know, we have in this country laws where if the government needs to build a highway and their houses in the way, they can destroy the houses and pay the owners. And it happens all the time. And I said, that's what Castro did. He paid the United States oil refineries back for the refineries. And the money that he determined they would get was based on the income taxes that the oil refineries paid or said they paid to the United States government. And he got access to that, so they paid them back. And then there are the King brothers. The King brothers are the, the wealthiest ranchers in America. They own half of Texas. You could not grow a potato in Cuba unless you got permission from the King brothers. So he confiscated their property and paid them back for what they declared it was worth in their taxes. So he, he, he was forced to turn to Russia by America's greed, okay? So what happened to Fidel Castro? He became a bad example. He gave free health to his people. He gave a free education to his people. Do you know the greatest sin in, sin in America is student debt? Do you know if you're a student and you're in debt, you cannot file bankruptcy? And if you die, your family has to pay that student debt debt? That is usury. These goddamn people should be in prison for crying out loud. And nothing is being done about it. This would have never existed under John Kennedy. We would still be getting a free education. We'd probably be getting free health. And you know that hundreds of American veterans go to Cuba because they can't get into veterans hospitals here. They go to Cuba. And you know that Cuba is exporting doctors around the world to help. I mean, the misinformation from the media about the rest of the world is absolutely and totally criminal because we do not and will not have a free press. It does not exist. Now, we get to express a little free speech here. You know why? We have no large audience. Anybody gets a large audience, like Martin Luther King, is gunned down. Like Malcolm X, they get gunned down. 
You mentioned earlier the Kennedys. You know that John Kennedy Jr. had this great magazine called George. A lot of people thought it was named after George Washington. It wasn't. It was named after the guy that John Jr. thought murdered his father, George Bush. And a very close friend of mine living in Florida was interviewed by John Jr. along with four other investigative journalists. John Jr. was going to hire them to look into the murder of his father. And then he disappears in a plane. And you know, for 48 hours, there were hundreds of civilians who volunteered to search for the plane and the government stepped in to stop the search. So that's another Kennedy who was murdered, obviously. Powerful stuff, John, um, amazing. Um, can you answer me, because I want to pass it over to Hartman, but can you answer me in just a brief couple of sentences? Um, is there anything you, you change in your life? And what I mean by that, I'll narrow it down. You say that the best things in your life has happened to you by accident. None of them were planned because every plan you made turned to shit. It was a disaster, right? <laughs> Well, Which, I had the ability to turn shit into fertilizer. But. Yeah. <laughs> so, what, what, so would you would you change anything in your life? And what I mean by that is, you had such a dysfunctional family. Um, you know, everybody wants a great upbringing. Would you have changed to have a fantastic upbringing, and you know, see where that led you, what path that took you on? Or are you happy with the way it turned out, the way oh, you're sitting here today? You know what? I must tell you, I don't know anybody or ha anybody happier than I am. I don't know anybody more content than I am. I mean, if I'd had a great family, you know the one thing, Chris, that I would have wanted to be? I would have wanted to be a singer. And I was, you know, uh, there's a little story in the, in the book about when I went to the movies, I could walk out of the movie singing every song that Judy Garland sang or Mickey Rooney or anybody sang. And I used to break, break up drunken brawls in my house by walking into the living room and interrupting them by singing these songs from the movies, which my father thoroughly enjoyed. But when he left, I went absolutely tone deaf. I went, everything about me shut down. And it shut down until I re semi-retired about a dozen years ago, and then I got a keyboard. And I've learned now to play keyboard, and I'm no longer tone deaf, and I write very funny song lyrics and stuff. If you get a chance, you know, I did vote for Obama because I thought he was going to uh, end all the fake wars, which he obviously did not, and he became a killer with drones. He killed a 16-year-old American in North Africa with a drone. So uh, after three months of Obama, I wrote something very funny called the Obama Blues, and, it, and I sing it. And the pictures, and it's really funny. But the, you want to give I, us a bar now? Yeah, and uh, you know, I, I I love sing. My wife was a band singer, and all of my good friends like Sinatra. They were they were singers, but you get to open your mouth, and at the top of your lungs, express yourself emotionally. You know, and I can't I can't do that. And and, and I wish I could be like George Carlin or Bill Hicks, or Richard Pryor, and scream my comedy. Because I'm so angry, but I can't. I'm not built that way. You know, I'm very, very reserved and very quiet about my comedy, but it's been awfully effective. You know, you can go, uh, Art Linkletter had the Art Linkletter Talent Scouts. And if you Google John Barber on Art Linkletter's Talent Scouts, I believe it's 1967. 
uh, I was only the second person to ever be brought back a second time on a talent scout show. And I was the only comic to ever come back. They brought a singer back once. I think it was Julius LaRose. I can't remember. But they brought, but if you Google that and listen to it today, it's as funny today as it was then. It's astonishing. And I just talk. And that's one of the reasons I never bombed. I've, I've seen a lot of comics bomb. The reason I never bombed as a performer, Chris, is because I would just talk to people and hopefully I'd be interesting. I was not like Henny Youngman or any of those guys doing one-liners, you know, take my wife, please, you know, stuff like that. That's not me. That's not me. And then fortunately I had, and I didn't even know I could write. I know interest in, I loved reading books, but there were books. I never thought about writing a book, but when I saw Jack Parr, I thought, you know, and what I did is I got a dozen joke books and I brought them home and I looked at them and they were all lousy jokes, but the ones that were good, everybody knew because I wanted to get a, a start being a comic. And I was going to go to a club in Santa Monica called The Horn. And the young star there was the young Jim Neighbors. So he and I started the Jim Neighbors who went on to be Gomer Pyle. We started there, but... When I looked at these things, I said, you know, I can write better than that. And so I sat down and I wrote my first act in about 10 minutes. That's how all of this stuff just flows out of me. It comes really, really easy. And I make observations. You know, sometimes I hate to say this, Chris. Sometimes I think I'm channeling Mark Twain. Because, you know, I look around at... Uh, at what's going on with the COVID and the lockdown. And I posted, I, and this is in the new, the, the, oh, uh, the new book that thankfully Steve mentioned, John Barber, the wittiest man in America is a Canadian. I think this line is in here about how, have you noticed, have the men noticed how much sexier and more enticing all women of all size and shapes have become since COVID and they've had to cover their mouths. <laughs> you go out to lunch or dinner and you have to wear a mask and you come home with your mate and you have to put on your fucking earplugs. So, <laughs> so anyway, oh, I started, fun, yeah. excuse me, Chris. I started to say I was looking in the mirror and I was thinking of killing myself because I knew any moment the, the FBI was going to come in. But all the people I knew, and my grandfather who had hung himself and then uh, uh, worked uh, 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 as a uh, shoveling coal and uh, people jumping under railroad trains. And I have a very famous actor friend whose brother jumped off a building in New York. They just did brutal things to themselves. And I thought, my God, life is hurting them. Why would they hurt themselves more? And when I looked into the mirror, I wasn't looking at me. I was literally looking for me. And I thought, you know, if I'm not here, nobody's going to miss me. And then I became just curious about what was going to happen tomorrow. And that has become the story of my life. I love today and I can't wait for tomorrow because I have the foggiest idea what it's going to bring. Thanks very much. And I love your positive attitude and your, your upbeatness. And uh, I absolutely love the jumper you have on, or as you call it over there, a sweater. So, um, yeah, or as we call it in Irish, a Gensi. Gensi Newark. <laughs> I'll pass you over to Hartmut. Thanks very oh, much, man. 
Hartman, sorry about taking so long. I just I no, it's amazing to listen to you. And um, I didn't know that you work, for example, for Frank Sinatra. This was for me completely new. Uh, yeah, you could go to my site, uh, johnbarbersworld.com. First of all, you can see the ga first garrison tapes for nothing. But then you, uh, you can see uh, 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 the night Sinatra uh, hosted the uh, Tonight Show. I was the first person he put on as a guest because I had a tw I had a 15 or 20 year feud with uh, Johnny Carson, which is outlined in the book. It's a great story. So uh, Francis had me on the show and I hope you get the book and read the story behind the scene. But in any event, you can see that for nothing. And, and then uh, somewhere down the line, I wanna point out a couple of things that Jim Garrison pointed out that will blow you simply away. So anyway, your question, Selman. And you know, I guess the reason I'm talking so much, I almost feel like I have an audience. You know, <laughs> I, got, I got these five great faces out there all around the world. You know how nice that is? Rather than talking to just one person. So anyway, um, I'm yours. Uh, this, the interesting thing is um, because, because we talked a lot about JFK, Oliver Stone, and uh, I remember that I have three favorite movies. And the first one is The Passenger from Michael, Michelangelo Antonioni with Jack Nicholson. Maybe you know it from 1975. Oh, yeah. And um, the second one is Oliver Stone, JFK. Yeah. And this I want to go into it. And the third one is LA Confidential from Curtis Hansen. Oh, yes. A terrific, a terrific cop movie, LA Confidential. I could name you. A dozen, dozen of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, one of them, if you get a chance, it's probably the greatest religious movie ever made. And it's called Christ, uh, it's called He Who Must Die. It's based on a Kazantzaki novel called Christ Recrucified. And it was written and directed by a blacklisted American writer called Jules Dassin. And basically the story, it, it takes place in either Turkey or Greece when Greece is occupied by Turks and they're going to put on the Passover play and they have to select the people who are going to play Mary Magdalene and Jesus. And they uh, uh, picked this young stuttering farmer to play Jesus. It is one of the most powerful movies I ever saw. Another great film is called The Parallax View. With, uh, yeah. Warren Beatty, did you ever see it? No. Oh my God! You might. It is about the Kennedy assassination. It's called The Parallax View with Warren Pakula, and it's directed by a guy named Alan Pakula, the best director producer in Hollywood. I mean, To Kill a Mockingbird, one of the classic movies. Clute, one of the great movies with Jane Fonda, and. Uh, uh, he was a he started as a 20-year-old producer in Hollywood when I started uh in the mailroom and we were friends until he was accidentally killed in a highway accident in New York. I can name you dozens of phenomena, but you must watch the parallax view. It is totally riveting. And kudos to Warren Beatty for making it. Anyway. If you want to talk movies or whatever you want to talk about, I'll talk. Yeah, I want to. I want to talk more about uh, JFK uh, okay. and uh, Clay Shaw, and okay. especially because I love this scene so much. 
it was uh, it was played by Joe Pesky. Yes. Uh, David Perry. Yes. Because he was in the he was in the in the in the in the movie. He was the guy. He was David Ferry, and David Ferry said, "You cannot, you cannot leave the organization. If you're in, you're in, and you cannot leave the organization." He became very nervous. He said, "I was become, I wanted to become a priest, and then uh, in reality, he was he he made suicide uh, with a paralyte. I think par what's the word of uh, what's the word in English? Um, per prolite. Pro uh, he he died by prolite." Do you have any knowledge behind this guy? Because it seems that he worked for the CIA. He did. I mentioned earlier that uh, he told Lee Ivans that uh, uh, Clay Shaw and himself and Lee Harvey Oswald were all CIA. And David Ferry was a pilot. And David Ferry, in a thunderstorm, drove to Galveston, Texas, for crying out loud, the day before the assassination. And you want to know something? Jim Garrison. When I when I interviewed Jim, and I and let me uh, get to some stories about Clay Shaw, which will let, curl your 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 hair. They're just all stuff that Garrison found. Now here, Jack Ruby murders uh, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. First of all, do you know that the FBI did not want the Zapruder film? They would not take possession of the Zapruder film. You know why? It would be used as evidence in a trial that would clear Lee Harvey Oswald of murder. And so they said it has no evidentiary value and they turned it down because they knew there would be no trial of Lee Harvey Oswald. And uh, oh my God! So in any event, uh, I wanted to get to uh, to Jim Garrison. Oh, there's so many things about Clay Shaw, David Ferry. Okay, uh, because this has to do with with uh, Ferry. He did not commit suicide. He he was murdered. Clay Clay Shaw was later murdered. But anyway, here's how smart Jim Garrison is, and it's in the Garrison files. And if you go to my new YouTube channel and you you can Google the Garrison Files, David Ferry, and the Garrison Files, Clay Shaw. Now, it's either in the David Ferry one or the Clay Shaw one. But here's some what Jim Garrison did. Oh, my God. It's just astonishing. What he did is he gathered all the information that he could gather about everything reported on November 22nd, 1963, in Dallas. So we went to every newspaper, every radio station, every witness, just thousands and thousands of pieces of information to find out in what really happened that day. Now, when he arrested Clay Shaw, I mentioned earlier that he all had all this warped, uh, homosexual, sadomasochistic material and movies and stuff like that. Jim Garrison got a letter from a professor at the University in Illinois saying that his roommate, his best friend, was Clay Shaw's roommate for an entire year. And at the end of that year, the roommate had saved enough money <laughs> to have a transsexual operation. 
And so when he became a she, she was no longer of any value to Clay Shaw and was kicked out. So he, Jim had this, this guy as a witness and his affidavit. Then he found three 20-year-old homosexuals who were gay or hirelings. They, three of them, didn't know one another, signed separate affidavits claiming for $20, these are the devious things they did sexually with Clay Shaw, Jack Ruby, and Lee Harvey Oswald. They were meeting. There is a picture in the movie of all of the meeting. It was a gay party. And uh, one of the guys who was at the party was a fellow named Perry Raymond Russo, who became one of Garrison's key witnesses. So when Clay Shaw was arrested, first of all, Jim Garrison said, you're going to point none of this out to the fact. Let me put that on a on pause for a second, because I want to uh, point out something. No, I'll, uh, Perry Raymond Russo. Perry Raymond Russo, when Shaw was, came forward to Garrison, said, I was at the party. And they were talking about triangulation and crossfire in Dallas. And he said, but I had none, nothing to do with that, and I'd be glad to be a witness to say so. So anyway, NBC hears about this. And they have a producer named Walter Sheridan, who works for the CIA, works for Bobby Kennedy, and works for the FBI. And he is sent on orders by NBC to New Orleans to destroy Jim Garrison's investigation. And he does. What he does is he calls Perry Raymond Russo. And he said, I have a job for you, $50,000 a year as an insurance broker in Los Angeles, California. And I'm coming down to confirm it. And you've got the job. Of, and they make arrangements to re meet at a motel. Well, Perry calls Mr. Garrison. And Mr. Garrison says, will you come into the office? Perry goes into the office. And Mr. Garrison says, will you wear a wire? So Perry agrees to wear a wire. So on the wire, you have Walter Sheridan bribing the most important witness and the most important murder investigation in America. And guess what? Jim Garrison brings criminal charges against Walter Sheridan, which never reach a court, and criminal charges against NBC, which should have lost its license. But there was a fairness doctrine at the time, as I mentioned earlier. So he appeals to the FCC. The FCC grants him a half an hour, 45 minutes at 11.30 at night on NBC. Jim Garrison goes on NBC and explains how the Central Intelligence Agency murdered our president, which he also did later on The Tonight Show. And these clips are in the film. Now, the owners of this country are not you and I or the 300 other million Americans, but the handful of owners who own the country look at this and say, holy shit, we can't have this kind of truth running around the network. So they disembowel the fairness doctrine, and it hasn't been alive since. That is another destruction of, of, uh, of free press. So what happens when Mr. Garrison loses a conspiracy case, he knows 
when he gets these homosexuals, now Clay Shaw was pointed by pointed up by NBC and CBS and the media as this darling socialite, wealthy socialite, and you know, fashionista who built homes and did, you know, put on great parties. And uh, so in any event, uh, when he's getting ready to bring him to trial, he realizes that if these people get up and start talking about Clay Shaw's homosexuality and his deviousness, his life is over with. And the government knew and Garrison knew that he would squeal before he would have his sex life revealed. So the government stepped in and stopped the investigation. And shortly thereafter, Clay Shaw died of a heart attack. So I want to get back to something that Jim Garrison discovered. Jack Ruby shoots Lee Harvey Oswald. Now, if you arrest Jack Ruby, what is one of the first questions you ask him? First, sure. why did you do it? Now, he, uh, he's asked that question. And Walter Cronkite says that he murders uh, Lee Harvey Oswald because he doesn't want to see Jackie Kennedy go through the trials of uh, hearing about her husband being killed. But that's not what Jack Ruby said. And we have him on camera talking about the truth, about this being performed by higher ups in the country who will never let the truth come forth. And he is murdered with cancer injections. Now, the other question you would ask him is, who told you to do it? Nobody in the Warren Report. The Warren Report was designed to cover up the murder. And I'm sad to say that Mark Lane played a major role in covering up the murder of John Kennedy. So when I interviewed Mr. Garrison, I said, Mr. Garrison, if you were the Attorney General of the United States, who would you, or would you, is there anybody you'd arrest? Without missing a beat, he said, the first person I would arrest was Lawrence B. Myers. And uh, then he named uh, a second person. And I said, hold on a second. I never, who is Lawrence B. Myers? And this is how smart Garrison was and how easy it was to solve. Simple CSI police work. He figured they were going to shoot John Kennedy and they do it on November 22nd, 1963. And that obviously it's been planned for months. And who are the major players? Jack Ruby, Lee Harvey, Oswald, David Ferry. So what does he do? He gets all their phone records. Smart. And then all these phone records are a lot of phone calls to a phone number of a, an apartment building in Chicago, Illinois, belongs to a woman named Joan Asse, A-S-S-E. And she is a mistress of Lawrence B. Myers, who is a successful mafioso businessman. And what Jim Garrison then does, he remembers reading about Lawrence V. Myers because they forgot to take him out of the Warren Report. And there he is the day before the murder of Lee Harvey Oswald dining with Jack Ruby at the cabana. And he says, that's the guy I would arrest because that's the guy who gave the orders that he had to shoot Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, that's how smart Garrison is. But here's something even smarter than that. The day of the murder, he got from the first uh, uh, physician, Dr. Perry, that the throat wound was an entrance wound. He got hundreds of witnesses who said the shots came from the grassy knoll. 
He got newspaper headlines. It's his second killer at large. You don't see those things anymore. He showed me the death certificate signed by Dr. McClelland at 105, death by gunshot wound to the right temple. You can't find that in the Warren report. And then um, I mentioned earlier uh, the uh, forensic pathologist who said there was no autopsy report because they wouldn't let them look at any pictures or x-rays. And you look at the 26 volumes of the Warren report, there's not one picture. There is not one x-ray. There's only a cartoon drawing of two heads with a bullet going through one and not through the other. But here's the most interesting thing to me. Because in the film, you see, and you might remember this, Steve, because you've seen it a couple of times, there's a newsman holding a microphone up to Lee Harvey Oswald. And he said, did you shoot the president? And Lee Harvey Oswald very quietly said, this is the first time I've heard of this. He said, I've never heard this before and I need some legal help. And so I would wish some attorney would come forward and help me. Now, I, I also interviewed the police officer who was with him when he was shot. And he said there was no way that Lee Harvey Oswald could be that peaceful after supposedly killing Officer Tippett and the president of the United States. Obviously, he did not, he did not do it. That was a police officer who, who was with them. But I always wondered, God, this guy is so calm. But you know what? Just an hour before that, he had been in Chief Curry's office for six hours. And everyone who looks at the assassination knows the story that when Lee Harvey Oswald was surrounded by a dozen and a half police officers with magnums and Stetsons in Curry's office, there was no stenographer and there was no tape recorder because Curry said there wasn't room for one. And yet he's in there for six hours being interrogated. But guess what Jim Garrison found? He found somebody who was present at that so-called interrogation, a police officer. And he testified to Jim Garrison. He said, there were never any questions of Lee Harvey Oswald about killing the president or Officer Tippett because there were three or four honest cops in there who tried to ask that question. But every time they asked the question, somebody in a blue suit stopped them. And Garrison said, I never speculate, John, but I'm telling you why he was stopped from talking. Because as a 21-year-old kid, if they tell him he's arrested for the murder of John Kennedy and Officer Tippett, he's going to say, holy shit, I'm, I was sent here by the CIA to help break up this assassination ring. I didn't do it. They knew he would blab. So they had to shut him up. And that's how smart Garrison was. And there was another guy, Richard Case Nagel. Richard Case Nagel was both a CIA agent and a Russian agent assigned. By, this is how the government set up Oswald as a patsy. They sent him there, along with Plumlee and a few other people, to infiltrate an assassination group that was going to kill the president and report back. And one of the guys to tell him was Richard Case Nagel, assigned by both the Soviet Union and the CIA. So Nagel finds out there is a plot. 
And so he notifies his contact at the CIA. There is definitely a plot. And he never hears back from the guy. Well, this guy being also with the Russian CIA knows how devious these organizations are and that there are multiple patsies. There were multiple patsies in Chicago, multiple patsies in Miami, and a gal was afraid that he was going to be a multiple patsy. So in September, he drives to El Paso, Texas, walks into a bank, takes out his gun and empties it into the ceiling and sits down. And the cops rush in and arrest him. And he said, you're trying to rob the bank. And he said, no, I want to be in jail on November 22nd, 1963 in El Paso and not in Dallas, Texas. Well, he thought just because he created a disturbance, nothing would happen to him. He was sentenced to 10 years in the insane ward at Missouri prison. And this, all of this information was given to me by Jim Garrison. Jim Garrison absolutely and totally solved the case. He gave all of his information to the federal government, which sent it back, which sent it all back. Now, why do I have this? When Jefferson Morley lost his case because of Judge Kavanaugh getting Garrison's material, and those 67 boxes are still in their hand, I also had those 67 boxes. So I decided a year ago, once a month or so, I'm going to release one of these hidden Garrison files. So there are half a dozen of them now on my site, but I lost my first site and all my other Garrison stuff because I, my webmaster turned out to be a Trumpaholic who went down that Q rabbit hole into Hades and over a joke that I wrote about Donald Trump, trashed 40 years of my work and all of the garrison files. And the joke was proof that Putin is a liar. He called Donald Trump a genius. That so offended him, he crashed my site. Now, fortunately, again, this is serendipity. A guy named Stu Shostak, who uh, is the only person in the world saving America's classic television, felt that classic television, the most classic television, was real people. I didn't know he was a huge fan. And when he heard that this Trumpaholic trashed my site, he called me. He said, do you still have those films and videos? And he said, yeah. I said, yes. He said, I'll re rebuild your site for you. So he successfully rebuilt my site. So, Steve, if you're looking at a beautiful site, it's designed and saved by Shostak. And, we're, and the amazing thing about this again is when I went back to search the videos to replace them up on my new site, I found interviews I did not even know I had. And one of them is an eight-minute interview with the corner of Los Angeles, Thomas Noguchi. So that will be up very, very shortly. I'll put, probably put it up around this, this November because it's related, again, to the assassination of John Kennedy. I mean, there are endless, endless, endless magnificent stories to tell about Mr. Garrison. Uh, John, it was a real, um, really amazing listening to you. And honestly, I appreciate, I, I, I admire your brain. It's unbelievable that you can have all this knowledge 
still precisely in the brand. It's it's uh, I'm really astonished. Yeah, I'm as I'm astounded as you are, Elman. I mean, I don't know where some of it comes from. I mean, stuff blurts out of me, and I'm, oh my god, did I say that? I remember one of the first times I got in trouble, you know, when I was a youngster, there were no fat people. You know, when I was a kid, there were no fat people anywhere. The only fat person I ever saw was Cindy Greenstreet in those Humphrey Bogart movies. And, you know, but he had such an interesting demeanor and voice. I absolutely loved him. But in, when I was in the eighth grade in public school, so just a kid, we had a teacher named Hetherington, English. I can remember his name, a great history teacher, but a horrible human being. And he always complained about the world. He couldn't start a class unless he complained for five minutes how god-awful the world was, how horrible his life was. He had to have a special chair built for him and a special desk for, built for him. He was so fat. And one day before class, he's leaning over the side and he's rubbing his leg. He said, my God, my leg is swollen. And I'm in the back of the room and I say, how can you tell? Well, the crowd... <laughs> The kids burst out in laughter. This guy jumps up from a chair, drags me into the the uh, the uh, the principal's office. I get beaten with this leather strap, and I still have some of the scars on my hand because they used to allow corporal punishment at that time. So this stuff just popped out of me, helmet, and it's been popping out of me ever since. And I never question it at all. I don't even know where it came. I don't even want to know where it comes from. Brilliant. I, I passed the grace. Thank you so much, John. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Oh, it, it was just a joy. It was an unexpected joy. I never had, I thought I'd be talking to just one person. And I guess, you know, I'm sorry if I went on for so long, but I mean, to be talking to five people at one time, how terrific. Hi, hi John. Um, I just hi. want to bring your. Hey, I'm still you, you look great with your glasses and hair down. No, yeah, I haven't heard a question from you. So if you have oh, a question, thank you. well, I will not bring my question now because we would be so happy to bring you back. But what I want to say is that you have fans in the audience and they have questions, but you have divine intervention because you have answered those questions. It's amazing, <laughs> but oh, you mean, hold it, hold it! You got you mean you guys actually have people who send you notes about questions and stuff? Oh, yes. Oh, oh, listen, if I'd known that, I would have been quiet and wanted be, <laughs> because often the people in the audience and I discovered this when I originated the AM show in Los Angeles and would open the phones. People out there had better questions than I did, and some of these people <laughs> no. out there. Probably have great questions. I would have loved to it. So if you have me back, even though I yeah. love to see these, uh, you know, four beautiful faces again, or these five beautiful faces again, I would love to talk to some of the people in your audience. But not not to worry. The, the divine intervention put <laughs> put the questions in your head, and as you said, you don't know where it's coming from. You just keep saying it. And before Steve closes, I just want to say happy birthday next month, and maybe you'll celebrate your birthday with us. Let's see. But anyway, oh, April, oh my okay. God, that would be a great birthday present. Thank you. Thank you. And I'll pass it on to Steve. And by the way, thank you for the audience, okay? I'm sure you got your answer, so thank you so much. I'll pass it on to Steve. Wow. John, 
just incredible. We're we're we can't wait to have you back. So so that's definitely going to happen. I mean, you are such an inspiration. What you you're you're sharper than, uh, you know, most 18 year olds. So um, (laughs) it's just incredible. Um, I mean, there's so much more to talk about and what you've done with this, uh, the Garrison tapes and your 2017 sequel, uh, the second assassination of John F. Kennedy is so important for people to watch. Um, why don't I, I went to your YouTube channel and I've like, I just can't get off it. It's, it's all your old films of you, you know, when you're younger and you're interviewing people, you're on Johnny Carson. So why don't you, we're going to close, but we're going to have you back. And I want to thank you, uh, for the incredible wisdom and information that you have just given the world. I'm not, I'm not wise. I'm just experienced. Well, you know, you didn't go to, you dropped out of high school and you, you're, you're a prime example of what's possible when you're living life. You know, you don't, you, you used your talents and you made something happen that is quite extraordinary. And you didn't, you, you didn't have an education per se, like everyone else. So that, that shows you what's possible and that you don't need to go into $250,000 worth of debt to, to, uh, to do something with your life. But Part of the reason um, I know more than most people is because I never went to an American school. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you're a Canadian. You're the funniest man in, a, in a North America and you're Canadian and we love that. So why don't you tell people where to reach you or, you know, uh, how you know, where, where to see all your stuff and then and then we'll wrap it up. Okay, uh, just go to my site. It's www.johnbarbersworld.com. It will have uh, a link to the films that Steve was talking about. And then it also have a link to the book, if you read it all. I will say quite immodestly that your mother's not a virgin, the bumpy life and times of the Canadian dropout who changed the face of American television is by far the best book ever written by anybody who was in show business, and that includes Cary Grant and Charlie Chaplin, who were more magnificent stars, but they didn't write books as entertaining and as funny. And 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 you can open up anywhere and read a great story. Now the second one is called John Barber, the wittiest man in America, is a Canadian. And the nice <laughs> thing about this, since we now live in a tweet world, you don't have to open it and read a story. You can just open it anywhere and read a joke or a comment that'll make you laugh or make you angry. But it is really, really good. I mean, I'm, and I had nothing to do with it. I just wrote it, but I didn't assemble it. A lady who is uh, named Carol Haney, publishes cult consultant in, in uh, New York City, was such a fan of reading my Facebook page she talked me into letting her go through the eight years of stuff and putting together the book. So she is entirely responsible for mounting in the content because I said, I don't want to see it until it's published. And I didn't see it until it's published. And wow. it's a pleasant surprise to me. Wow. Okay. So everyone has to go to your site. You have to watch the uh, Jim Garrison tapes because what happened in 1963 is the same group of people today that are doing what's going on today and what they've done for the last six decades. So it's all relevant to what's going on now. And next week, absolutely on target. And that's why it's so important. 
Yes, uh, you solved the murder, as uh, Jimmy Carter said, and everything will unravel. 911, Iraq, Vietnam, all of it will unravel. You right. will know the sickness that is drawing America right now. That's right. So we can't wait to have you back because there's there's we could we could make we could have the John Barber tapes, <laughs> you know. So uh, next week we have a big live show with David Ike and Andy Kaufman oh, together. He's wonderful, David. So wonderful. you can listen to that. It's uh, Saturday at twelve noon Eastern time, live uh, on uh, the Quantum Nurse channel and the Quantum Nurse Facebook channel. And Steve, Steve when you're talking to David. There are two guys in England that I really like. David Icke is one, and one is the other. God, who's the other guy? The guy that's got his own show. He is, uh, I think he was a member of parliament, and he's critical of Israel. Quite. Oh, you know who I'm talking about. But in any event, when you're talking to David, tell him that twice I've sent him a note asking if he would like to have me on his show. I never heard from him. You can't get through. Watch the show and write a question and we'll ask him. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Good for you. So, well, we're going to we, we're gonna wrap it up. You know show business. Uh, you know how it is. You're, yeah. you're the king of it. So we're going to wrap it up and we'll see you again. And thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you. And all of you stay well and stay safe and stay warm. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you. Cheers. Fantastic. Thank you so much and goodbye. It was a real pleasure. Bye -bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.